grace and peace to you, dear siblings in Christ, whether you find yourself up front or in your seats or on the live stream, from Jesus, whose story is linked with yours. Amen. There are a lot of different ways to tell a story. Ben and I have enjoyed watching the show The Crown, which tells a story about the British royal family, focusing primarily on her, on Queen Elizabeth II. The show got me interested in learning more about the British royal family uh, throughout the centuries, and one of the most fascinating things that I've noticed is how very differently the same story can be told. I've seen now the story of the British royalty shared through a fictionalized TV show, but also through a documentary about castles in Great Britain, a detailed map of genealogy, a cookbook, and a museum exhibit of jewels, weapons, and other artifacts. Each one a totally unique perspective on the same story. If you're paying attention, you might know there's some current drama in the royal family, and it takes on one look when it's told through a series of recorded interviews with Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan. It takes on a very different look when it's told, for example, through a nonfiction book written by a third-party journalist. Very different versions of the same story. There are a lot of different ways to tell a story. And when we observe this with something like the British royal family, we might find it interesting, or you may not find it interesting, but ultimately it doesn't really matter. It has no real bearing on our day-to-day -day lives. When we observe this with Jesus, though, it matters a lot more. And there are a lot of different ways to tell stories about Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, or books that tell the good news of Jesus, at the start of the New Testament, tell four very different stories about him. It's not that any one is better or more accurate or more truthful than the others. They just have four different goals in mind, different emphases to make. The Gospel of Mark that we just heard from is likely the oldest of the four Gospels, and it's also the shortest. Mark leaves out almost all extraneous information. The storytelling is efficient and to the point, almost like the author is in a hurry. Take today's passage as an example. In just six short verses, we meet Jesus, see him baptized, watch the sky get ripped apart, catch our first glimpse of the Holy Spirit, hear the voice of God, race into the wilderness, encounter Satan, see Jesus wrestle with temptation, be cared for by angels, learn that John the Baptist has been arrested, travel with Jesus back to Galilee, and receive Jesus' first act of preaching. It's a lot. There's a lot to unpack here. And because the author of Mark uses words so sparingly, each one is significant. I want to look 
at this story with you. And as we do, I want to talk about some other stories, too. And those are your stories. Because the four Gospels are not the only way to tell stories about Jesus. The stories that you tell matter, too. Beyond reading what our Holy Scriptures have to say about him, noticing where Jesus shows up in our own lives, and sharing that with each other also helps us to learn more about him and to follow him more closely. So as we look at Mark's story about Jesus, we're also going to think about where we fit into it or how it helps us to tell our own stories too. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. This is how the author of Mark's Gospel introduces us to Jesus. The only thing that happens before this in the story is that we meet John the Baptist, who's described as a messenger preparing the way a voice crying out in the wilderness. John is a strange guy. He's a wild character dressed in camel's hair. He lives off a diet of locusts and honey. He shouts about repentance, but somehow he is compelling too. And he's drawn huge crowds out to hear him speak and to be baptized by him. One member of those crowds is Jesus who does just what hundreds of others have done, enters the waters of the river and gets dunked under by John. When he emerges, though, something entirely new happens. The heavens are ripped apart. Something like a dove flies down and lands on him, and a heavenly voice announces, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. This is the first thing that we learn about Jesus. It's also the first word that Jesus gets at the start of his ministry. Before anything else, before the teaching, calling followers, drawing crowds, before the healing, the confrontations with authorities, before the miracles, the very first thing is that Jesus is claimed as one who is deeply loved by God. Everything else he does is grounded in this truth. This is the very first truth about you, too. Everything else that you discover about yourself, all the ways that God has called you and will call you, all the challenges you face, all the meaning and the purpose you find in life, it's all grounded in the truth that you are deeply loved by God. God made that plain at your own baptism. I don't think that the heavens were ripped apart at that moment for you, but I know that you were claimed as beloved when you were marked with the cross of Christ forever. 
Maybe this is the part of the story that intersects with your story today. Maybe you need to be reminded that you are already forever loved. You don't have to earn it, and there is no risk of losing it. Would a relationship or your job, your schoolwork, your free time, the way that you talk to yourself, might it look different if you started from a place of, I am already loved, instead of, I need to earn love or approval. Maybe this week, each time you look in a mirror, you need to say to yourself, that person is so, so loved. I am so, so loved. Or maybe that's not part of your story this morning. Maybe it's the wilderness that's striking a chord for you. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Well, the Spirit that showed up like a dove didn't stay that gentle for very long. Just a moment later, and she's driving Jesus out into the wilderness, where he stayed for 40 days a biblical number that signifies that something holy, something transformational is happening. Jesus is not alone in this wilderness wandering. He wrestles with temptation in the form of Satan himself. He has wild beasts for company, which doesn't sound great. And he is strengthened and sustained by none other than God's own angels. I think there are any number of ways that this might be part of your story, too. I know that there are ways it's been mine. Maybe you're stuck in a wilderness right now, trying to navigate a change to your health, debating a career move, wondering who you are after a relationship has ended, figuring out life after retirement, facing big doubts, or wandering the very difficult terrain of grief and loss. Maybe you just feel a little lost in life without really knowing why. Or maybe the wrestling with temptation piece is a main plot line these days for you or for a loved one, and you know how intense that is. Maybe you've been stuck at home with sick family members and the idea of only having wild beasts for company seems entirely too familiar to you today. Whether it's this or something else, if you are in the wilderness these days, may Jesus' story remind you that you are not there alone. Jesus knows exactly what you are going through, and he's right there beside you. And you will be strengthened and sustained one day at a time. And if you are in the wilderness, try telling somebody else about it because chances are good that they have been there too. And their stories about how Jesus showed up for them will help to give you the strength that you need for this chapter in your story. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. 
A brief glance at these last two verses might suggest that they're just a summary, uh, meant to propel us forward <clears throat> to the next part of the story. Actually, though, there are at least two crucial details here that tell us something important about God and Jesus and about us, too. The first is the phrase, after John was arrested. John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus' ministry. That the authorities took notice of his work and decided it was time to put an end to it, and an end to him, as it turned out, does not bode well for Jesus. In fact, it foreshadows Jesus' own run-in with the authorities. This moment, right after Jesus, John's arrest, would have been a really good time for Jesus to lay low, to fly under the radar, to avoid attracting attention or drawing crowds. It is basically the worst possible time for him to begin his own ministry because he looks and sounds a whole lot like John. But that's exactly what Jesus does. What does that have to do with you and your story? Maybe you need to know that it is never too late for God to do something new. Maybe you need to hear that God's timing doesn't always make a lot of sense to the rest of us, but that doesn't mean God doesn't know what God's doing. Maybe you need to be reminded that when it comes to Jesus, endings can easily become beginnings. And no time is the wrong time for Jesus to show up with good news. The second detail to notice at the end of this passage from Mark is that when Jesus does begin his ministry, he does so by calling people to repent and believe the good news. I think when we hear the word repent, we tend to assume it means something like feel bad about how you've messed up and say you're sorry. And if we tried to explain why repentance was important, I think a lot of us would say something about keeping our behavior on the straight and narrow or making sure we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And that's not wrong exactly, but it does miss the point. To repent means to turn around, to turn away from whatever's distracting us so that we can turn towards God. And the reason we turn towards God is so that we can believe in the good news. We repent so that we can receive again the marvelous truth of God's love and forgiveness and learn how to share in the abundant life that God has for us. Repentance is a tool that gives us access to joy. And in your story, maybe you need to ask yourself what you need to turn away from so that you can focus on Jesus more clearly. Maybe you need to figure out what's getting in the way of you feeling how deeply loved you are or following where, more closely where God is leading you. Or maybe you need to hear that faith in Jesus is ultimately about good news for you, for your neighbor, and for the world, rather than being about shame or fear or judgment. Maybe you just need permission to delight in the joy that you are finding, 
or some encouragement to share that joy with others. Whatever the details of your story today, may you know that Jesus is a part of it. May you turn towards him and find his joy. May you feel his love, hear his call, and notice his presence. And then may you tell your stories to others so that they can do the same. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about Farmington Lutheran Church, its ministries, and how to connect to this part of the body of Christ by going to farmingtonlutheran.com. Peace be with you.